Hello and welcome to Dark History Season 7, Episode 25, the final episode of Season 7 and for this year. Well, sort of the final episode for this year, because uh, we've obviously got the Christmas campfire episode coming up. But you know, final episode of the season. Longer term listeners of the show would know that I um, take a break in December. Um, a multitude of factors, really. Uh, it's my birthday, it's a bunch of my family's birthday, and then we've got obviously Christmas and New Year. So December is just chaos for me. Um, and and I'm, I'm sort of all over the place traveling around, uh, meeting family and stuff. So I generally tend to take December off. I was hoping to get one more episode out of this season, uh, but time's just caught up with me and say, like, this, this stuff has just caught up with me. So we're going to end the season uh, with the Jeff episode, but I didn't want to leave everyone hanging too much. So I thought what I'd do is I'd play a recent uh, patron bonus instead, just to fill the the, the kind of uh, last slot in December before the Christmas campfire anyway. Uh, speaking of the Christmas campfire, uh, this obviously will be the final call for that. There's been loads of entries this year. It's looking like another great episode coming up, possibly too. Um, if you would still like to be involved, there's still time. Uh, I would say probably try and get them into me in fact, I'll make the closing date the 20th of December. If you can get them to me by the 20th of December, that would be great uh, because I'll obviously work on them over Christmas to get them out for Christmas Eve. And then if there's enough for two episodes, I'll do what I normally do and I'll, I'll do another one in between sort of Christmas and New Year, that kind of period where everyone's sort of climbing the walls a little bit. So I think it's looking like there's more than likely going to be enough for two episodes and say, you've still got time if you want to be involved. 20th of December, we'll say the cutoff point, uh, email me. Uh, contact at Dark History, so that would be great. Um, yeah, otherwise, thank you very much for listening all season. Uh, this has been a, a great season. I, I looked back uh, the other day at just the episodes and I'm really pleased with most every episode of this season. I really enjoyed every single one. It's been a couple of little landmarks. The podcast actually managed to pass 10 and a half million downloads uh, this, this season. So that's pretty mad. Um, so, um, yeah, thank you so much uh, for listening all year and, you know, your kind support in all the ways that you, you do support, like leaving, you know, reviews and Patreon and merch and just telling your friends and whatever you do, like, you know, just listening to the podcast is, is massive support. So, yeah, thanks so much. Um, it's been a great year, great season. And here's to next season, which will be, um, I think, the first weekend of January, I think it is. Uh, I've got it written down somewhere. I have been working on those episodes. The first episode is bonkers. It's so out there, in fact, that several times I had to check that it wasn't fiction. And it wasn't until I had read it in, uh, I read a report in a bunch of newspapers, but I still wasn't sure if it was fiction or not, because some of these newspapers were less than reputable, should we say. Um, And it wasn't until I finally read a report from a a reputable, like, known (laughs) good newspaper that i was like right no this definitely isn't fiction this is mad so yeah that this that'll be the first episode of next year it's uh, an interesting story uh, i hope you'll enjoy it anyway look forward to that anyway enough of the rambling thank you again just just a quick thank you for listening thank you so much say ten and a half million downloads is about ten and a half million more than i ever expected when i started the podcast i mean i was seven years in and still going strong with me sitting in my bedroom writing the scripts and recording the thing it just feels really cool that it's still kind of in this day and age of like kind of massive podcasts uh you know the dark histories can still be punching way above its weight in terms of you know where 
the, the company it stands in um, and it's just me in my bedroom which is like how podcasting used to be uh, but anyway enough of that lamenting uh, let's get on with this uh, so yeah as I say um, I wanted to not just leave a blank air until the Christmas edition um, uh, Christmas campfire I wanted to um, put out something so uh, this is a, 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 just a, a small bonus episode that I did for Patreon uh, relatively recently just reading a few ghost stories uh, so yeah Hopefully um, you enjoy that and uh, say thanks for listening to this season. I'll see you for Christmas Campfire. But until then, cheers. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories, a special episode for Halloween. I guess kind of a bonus episode. I, th- I thought about doing this for, for a little while, actually. Um, basically, most of the winter I like spending time reading short ghost stories um or you know those sorts of things and uh i just thought if i'm going to be sitting here reading them i might as well read them aloud and and record them and then i can upload them as basically sort of bonus episodes in between the regular episodes of dark histories um so yeah i figured you know why not start on halloween so i've got a couple of old ghost stories for you one well one considerably older than the other so we'll start with uh, the oldest first. This is The Shadow by Edith Nesbitt. Edith Nesbitt is a, a really interesting writer, actually. She was, um, if, if, if for anyone that doesn't know her, she's uh, was around in like the, the late Victorian period, early 1900s. And uh, she was kind of a renegade, really. She was a bit, was a bit of a maverick. Like uh, she, she uh, had a husband, but I think he had uh, not necessarily like a second wife, but like a mistress that they all lived together and I think they both had children with him and stuff like that. And they were all into socialism. And, yeah, they were kind of mavericks for their time. Uh, and she made a career writing um, uh, young children's fiction, I think, and adult fiction and uh, for, for magazines as well. Um, but, yeah, she wrote a bunch of ghost stories, which is pretty cool. Uh, this one, The Shadow, is one of her later ghost stories. I think it was actually second to last story she ever published um but yeah it was called the shadow it was published in 1905 so yeah let's let's get started this is not an artistically rounded off ghost story and nothing is explained in it and there seems to be no reason why any of it should have happened but that's no reason why it should not be told you must have noticed that all the real ghost stories you have ever come close to are like this in these respects no explanation no logical coherence here is the story There were three of us and another, but she had fainted suddenly at the second extra of the Christmas dance and had been put to bed in the dressing room next to the room which we three shared. It had been one of those jolly, old-fashioned dances where nearly everybody stays the night and the big country house is stretched with utmost containing, guests harbouring on sofas, couches, settles and even mattresses on floors. Some of the young men actually, I believe, slept on a great dining table. We had talked of our partners as girls will, and then the stillness of the manor house, broken only by the whisper of the wind in the cedar branches and the scraping of their harsh fingers against our window panes had pricked us to such a luxurious confidence in our surroundings of bright chintz and candle flame and firelight that we had dared to talk of ghosts, in which we all said we did not believe one bit. We had told the story of the phantom coach and the horribly strange bed and the lady in the sack and the house in Berkeley Square. 
We none of us believed in ghosts, but my heart, at least, seemed to leap to my throat and choke me there when a tap came to our door. A tap faint, not to be mistaken. Who's there? said the youngest of us, craning a lean neck towards the door. It opened slowly, and I gave you my word. The instant of suspense that followed is still reckoned among my life's least confident moments. Almost at once, the door opened fully, and Miss Eastwich, my aunt's housekeeper, companion and general standby, looked in on us. We all said, come in, but she stood there. She was, at all normal hours, the most silent woman I have ever known. She stood and looked at us, and shivered a little. So did we, for in those days the corridors were not warmed by hot water pipes, and the air from the door was keen. I saw your light, she said at last, and I thought it was late for you to be up. After all this gaiety, I thought perhaps... Her glance turned towards the door of the dressing room. No, I said, she's fast asleep. I should have added a good night, but the youngest of us forestalled my speech. She did not know Miss Eastwich as we others did, did not know how her persistent silence had built a wall around her, a wall that no one dared to break down with the commonplaces of talk or the littlenesses of mere human relationship. Mr Eastwich's silence had taught us to treat her as a machine, and as other than a machine, we never dreamed of treating her. But the youngest of us had seen Miss Eastwich for the first time that day. She was young, crude, ill-balanced, subject to blind, calf-like impulses. She was also the heiress of a rich, tallow chander, but that has nothing to do with this part of the story. She jumped up from the hearthrug, her unsuitably rich, silk-lace-trimmed dressing gown falling back from her thin collarbones, and ran to the door and put an arm around Miss Eastwich's prim, lissen-circled neck. I gasped. I should as soon have dared to embrace Cleopatra's needle. Come in, said the youngest of us. Come in and get warm. There's lots of cocoa left. She drew Miss Eastwich in and shut the door. The vivid light of pleasure in the housekeeper's pale eyes went through my heart like a knife. It would have been so easy to put an arm round her neck if one had only thought she wanted an arm there. But it was not I who had thought that, and indeed my arm might not have brought the light evoked by the thin arm of the youngest of us. Now, the youngest went on eagerly, you shall have the very biggest, nicest chair and the cocoa pots here on the hob as hot as hot and we've all been telling ghost stories, only we don't believe in them a bit and when you get warm, you ought to tell one too. Miss Eastwich, that model of decorum and decently done duties, tell a ghost story. You sure I'm not in your way? Miss Eastwich said, stretching her hands to the blaze. I wondered whether housekeepers have fires in their rooms, even at Christmas time. Not a bit. I said it, and I hope I said it as warmly as I felt it. I, Miss Eastwich, I'd have asked you to come in other times, only I didn't think you'd care for the girl's chatter. The third girl, who was really of no account, and that's why I've not said anything about her before, poured cocoa for our guest. I put my fleecy Madeira shawl around her shoulders. I could not think of anything else to do for her, and I found myself wishing desperately to do something. The smiles she gave us were quite pretty. People can smile prettily at 40 or 50, or even later, though girls don't realise this. It occurred to me, and this was another knife thrust, that I had never seen Miss Eastwich smile, a real smile, before. The pale smiles of dutiful acquiescence were not of the same blood as this dimpling, happy, transfiguring look. This is very pleasant, she said, and it seemed to me that I had never before heard her real voice. It did not please me to think that at the cost of cocoa, a fire and my arm around her neck, I might have heard this new voice any time these six years. We've been telling ghost stories, I said, 
The worst of it is, we don't believe in ghosts. No one, one knows, has ever seen one. It's always what somebody told somebody who told somebody, you know, said the youngest of us, and you can't believe that, can you? What the soldier said is not evidence, said Miss Eastwich. Will it be believed that the little Dickens quotation pierced one more keenly than the new smile or the new voice? And all the ghost stories are so beautifully rounded off, a murder committed on the spot, or a hidden treasure, or a warning. I think that makes them harder to believe. The most horrid ghost story that I ever heard was one that was quite silly. I'll tell it. Oh, I can't. It doesn't sound anything to tell. Miss Eastwich ought to tell one. Oh, do, said the youngest of us, and her salt cellars loomed dark as she stretched her neck eagerly and, and laid an entreating arm on our guest's knee. The only thing I ever knew of was... was hearsay, she said slowly, till just the end. I knew she would tell her story, and I knew that she had never before told it, and I knew she was only telling it now because she was proud, and this seemed the only way to pay for the fire and the cocoa and the laying of that arm around her neck. Don't tell it, I said suddenly. I know you'd rather not. I dare say it would bore you, she said meekly, and the youngest of us, who, after all, did not understand everything, glared resentfully at me. We should just love it, she said. Do tell us. Never mind if it isn't a real, proper, fixed-up story. I'm certain anything you think ghostly would be quite too beautifully horrid for anything. Miss Eastwich finished her cocoa and reached up to set the cup on the mantelpiece. It can't do any harm, she said, half to herself. They don't believe in ghosts, and it wasn't exactly a ghost either, and they're all over twenty. They're not babies. There was a breathing time of hush and expectancy. The fire crackled and the gas suddenly glared higher because the billiard lights had been put out. We heard the steps and voices of the men going along the corridors. It is really hardly worth telling, Miss Eastwich said doubtfully, shading her faded face from the fire with her thin hand. We all said, go on, oh, go on, do. Well, she said, twenty years ago, and more than that, I had two friends, and I loved them more than anything in the world, and they married each other. She paused, and I knew just in what way she had loved each of them. The youngest of us said, how awfully nice for you, do go on. She patted the youngest shoulder, and I was glad that I had understood, and that the youngest of all hadn't. She went on. Well, after they were married, I did not see much of them for a year or two, and then he wrote and asked me to come and stay, because his wife was ill, and I should cheer her up, and cheer him up as well, for it was a gloomy house, and he himself was growing gloomy too. I knew as she spoke that she had every line of that letter by heart. Well, I went. The address was in Lee, near London. In those days, there were streets and streets of new villa houses growing up round old brick mansions, standing in their own grounds, with red walls round, you know, and a sort of flavour of coaching days and post-chaise and Blackheath highwaymen about them. He had said the house was gloomy, and it was called The Furs, and I imagined my cab going through a dark, winding shrubbery and drawing up in front of one of these sedate old square houses. Instead, we drew up in front of a large, smart villa with iron railings, gay and caustic tiles, leading from the iron gate to the stained glass panelled door. And for shrubbery, only a few stunted cypresses and acubas in the tiny front garden. But inside, it was all warm and welcoming. He met me at the door. She was gazing into the fire, and I knew that she had forgotten us. But the youngest girl of all still thought it was us that she was telling her story. He met me at the door, she said again, 
and thanked me for coming and asked me to forgive the past. What past? said the high priestess of the inner propos, the youngest of all. Oh, I suppose he meant because they hadn't invited me before or something, said Miss Eastwich worriedly. But it's a very dull story, I find, after all, and... Oh, do go on, I said. Then I kicked the youngest of us and got up to rearrange Miss Eastwich's shawl and said in blatant dumb show over the shawled shoulder, Shut up, you little idiot. After another silence, the housekeeper's new voice went on. They were very glad to see me, and I was very glad to be there. You girls now have such troops of friends, but these two were all I had, all I ever had. Mabel wasn't exactly ill, only weak and excitable. I thought he seemed more ill than she did. She went to bed early, and before she went, she asked me to keep him company through his last pipe. So we went into the dining room and sat in the two armchairs on each side of the fireplace. They were covered with green leather, I remember. There were bronze groups of horses and a black marble clock on the mantelpiece, all wedding presents. He poured out some whiskey for himself, but he hardly touched it. He sat looking into the fire, and at last I said, What's wrong? Mabel looks as well as you could expect. He said, Yes, but I don't know from one day to another that she won't begin to notice something wrong. That's why I wanted you to come. You were always so sensible and strong-minded, and Mabel's like a little bird on a flower. I said yes, of course, and waited for him to go on. I thought he must be in debt or in trouble of some sort, so I just waited. Presently, he said, Margaret, this is a very peculiar house. He always called me Margaret. You see, we'd been such old friends. I told him I thought the house was very pretty and fresh and homelike, only a little too new, but that fault would mend with time. He said, it is new. That's just it. We're the first people who've ever lived in it. If it were an old house, Margaret, I should think it was haunted. I asked if he had seen anything. No, he said, not yet. Heard then, said I. No, not heard either, he said. But there's a sort of feeling, I can't describe it. I've seen nothing and I've heard nothing, but I've been so near to seeing and hearing. Just near, that's all. And something follows me about. Only when I turn around, there's never anything, only my shadow. And I always feel that I shall see the thing next minute. But I never do. Not quite. It's always just not visible. I thought he'd been working rather hard and tried to cheer him up by making light of all this. It was just nerves, I said. Then he said that he had thought I could help him. And did I think anyone he had wronged could have laid a curse on him? And did I believe in curses? I said I didn't. And the only person anyone could have said he had wronged forgave him freely... I knew if there was anything to forgive, so I told him this too. It was I, not the youngest of us, who knew the name of that person, wronged and forgiving. So then I said he ought to take Mabel away from the house and have a complete change, but he said no, Mabel had got everything in order and he could never manage to get her away just now without explaining everything. And above all, he said, she mustn't guess there's anything wrong. I dare say, I shan't feel quite such a lunatic now that you're here. So we said goodnight. Is that all the story? said the third girl, striving to convey that even as it stood it was a good story. That's only the beginning, said Miss Eatswitch. Whenever I was alone with him, he used to tell me the same thing over and over again. And at first, when I began to notice things, I tried to think that it was his talk that had upset my nerves. The odd thing was that it wasn't only at night. 
carpet in broad daylight and particularly on the stairs and passages. On the staircase, the feeling used to be so awful that I have had to bite my lips till they bled to keep myself from running upstairs at full speed. Only I knew if I did, I should go mad at the top. There was always something behind me, exactly as he had said, something that one could just not see, and a sound that one could just not hear. There was a long corridor at the top of the house. I have sometimes almost seen something, you know, how one sees things without looking, but if I turned around, it seemed as if the thing drooped and melted into my shadow. There was a little window at the end of that corridor. Downstairs there was another corridor, something like it, with a cupboard at one end and the kitchen at the other. One night, I went down into the kitchen to heat some milk for Mabel. The servants had gone to bed. As I stood by the fire, waiting for the milk to boil, I glanced through the open door and along the passage. I never could keep my eyes on what I was doing in that house. The cupboard door was partly open. I used to keep empty boxes and things in it. And, as I looked, I knew that now it was not going to be almost any more. Yet I said, Mabel, not because I thought it could be Mabel, who was crouching down there, half in and half out of the cupboard. The thing was grey at first, and then it was black, and when I whispered, Mabel, it seemed to sink down till it lay like a pool of ink on the floor, and then its edges drew in, and it seemed to flow like ink when you tilt up the paper you have spilt it on, and it flowed into the cupboard till it was all gathered into the shadow there. I saw it go quite plainly. The gas was full on in the kitchen. I screamed aloud, but even then I'm thankful to say I had enough sense to upset the boiling milk so that when he came downstairs three steps at a time, I had the excuse for my scream of a scalded hand. The explanation satisfied Mabel, but next night he said, Why didn't you tell me it was that cupboard? All the horror of the house has come out of that. Tell me, have you seen anything yet? Or is it only the nearly seeing and nearly hearing still? I said, you must tell me first what you've seen. He told me, and his eyes wandered as he spoke to the shadows by the curtains, and I turned up all three gaslights and lit the candles on the mantelpiece. Then we looked at each other and said we were both mad and thanked God that Mabel, at least, was sane, for what he had seen was what I had seen. After that, I hated to be alone with a shadow, because at any moment I might see something that would crouch and sink and lie like a black pool and then slowly draw itself into the shadow that was nearest. Often that shadow was my own. The thing came first at night, but afterwards there was no hour safe from it. I saw it at dawn and at noon, in the dusk and in the firelight, and always it crouched and sank, and was a pool that flowed into some shadow and became part of it. And always I saw it with a straining of the eyes a pricking and aching. It seemed as though I could only just see it, as if my sight to see it had to be strained to the utmost, and still the sound was in the house, the sound that I could just not hear. At last, one morning early, I did hear it. It was close behind me, and it was only a sigh. It was worse than the thing that crept into the shadows. I don't know how I bore it. I couldn't have borne it if I hadn't been so fond of them both, but I knew in my heart that if he had no one to whom he could speak openly, he would go mad or tell Mabel. His was not a very strong character, very sweet and kind and gentle, but not strong. He was always easily led, so I stayed on and bore up and we were very cheerful and made little jokes and tried to be amusing when Mabel was with us, 
but when we were alone, we did not try to be amusing. And sometimes a day or two would go by without us seeing or hearing anything, and we should perhaps have fancied that we had fancied what we had seen and heard. Only there was always the feeling of there being something about the house that one could just not hear and not see. Sometimes we used to try not to talk about it, but generally we talked of nothing else at all. And the weeks went by and Mabel's baby was born. The nurse and the doctor said that both mother and child were doing well. He and I sat late in the dining room that night. We had neither of us seen or heard anything for three days. Our anxiety about Mabel was lessened. We talked of the future. It seemed then so much brighter than the past. We arranged that, the moment she was fit to be moved, he should take her away to the sea, and I should superintend the moving of their furniture into the new house that he had already chosen. He was gayer than I had seen him since his marriage, almost like his old self. When I said goodnight to him, he said a lot of things about my having been a comfort to them both. I hadn't done anything much, of course, but still I'm glad that he said them. And then I went upstairs, almost for the first time, without the feeling of something following me. I listened at Mabel's door. Everything was quiet. I went on towards my own room, and in an instant I felt that there was something behind me. I turned. It was crouching there. It sank, and the black fluidness of it seemed to be sucked under the door of Mabel's room. I went back. I opened the door a listening inch. All was still, and then I heard a sigh close behind me. I opened the door and went in. The nurse and the baby were asleep. Mabel was asleep too. She looked so pretty, like a tired child. The baby was cuddled up into one of her arms with its tiny head against her side. I prayed then that Mabel might never know the terrors that he and I had known, that those little ears might never hear any but pretty sounds, those clear eyes never see any but pretty sights. I did not dare to pray for a long time after that, because my prayer was answered. She never saw, she never heard anything more in this world, and now I could do nothing more for him or for her. When they had put her in her coffin, I lighted wax candles round her and laid the horrible white flowers that people would send near her, and then I saw that he had followed me. I took his hand to lead him away. At the door we both turned. It seemed to us that we heard a sigh. He would have sprung to her side in, I don't know what mad, glad hope. But at that instant we both saw it. Between us and the coffin, first grey, then black, it crouched an instant, then sank and liquefied, and was gathered together and drawn till it ran into the nearest shadow. And the nearest shadow was the shadow of Mabel's coffin. I left the next day. His mother came. She had never liked me. Miss Eastwich paused. I think she had quite forgotten us. Didn't you see him again? asked the youngest of us all. Only once, Miss Eastwich answered, and something black crouched then between him and me, but it was only his second wife crying beside his coffin. It's not a cheerful story, is it? And it doesn't lead anywhere, but I've never told anyone else. I think it was seeing his daughter that brought it all back. She looked towards the dressing room door. Mabel's baby? Yes, and exactly like Mabel, only with his eyes. The youngest of all had Miss Eastwich's hands and was petting them. Suddenly, the woman wrenched her hands away and stood at gaunt height, her hands clenched, eyes straining. She was looking at something that we could not see, and I know what the man in the Bible meant when he said, the hair of my flesh stood up. 
What she saw seemed not quite to reach the height of the dressing room door handle. Her eyes followed it down, down, widening and widening. Mine followed them, all the nerves of them seemed strained to the utmost. And I almost saw, or did I quite see? I can't be certain, but we all heard the long-drawn, quivering sigh, and to each of us it seemed to be breathed just behind us. It was I who caught up the candle, it dripped all over my trembling hand, and was dragged by Miss Eastwich to the girl who had fainted during the second extra. But it was the youngest of all whose lean arms were round the housekeeper when we turned away, and that have been around her many times since, in the new home where she keeps house for the youngest of us. The doctor who came in the morning said that Mabel's daughter had died of heart disease, which she had inherited from her mother. It was that that had made her faint during the second extra, but I have sometimes wondered whether she may not have inherited something from her father. I have never been able to forget the look on her dead face. So that was The Shadow from Edith Nesbitt, which is a pretty dark story. Um, Yeah, a lot of subtext, I think, to read into that one if you want to. Uh, I think we'll just leave the literary uh, criticism there and uh, I'll let you... uh, Look, look into that more if you want to. But for me, I, I think it's uh, one of her better ghost stories, actually. I think it's... Well, I like... I, I've not read all of her ghost stories, but I, I did enjoy that one. And I'll be back just after these short advert breaks with another ghost story. Today's episode is sponsored by Factor. This bustling holiday season, uh, tell me about it, you might be looking for nutritious, flavourful meals to fuel you on your jam-packed days. Factor... America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service can help you eat well for breakfast, lunch and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all your holiday to-dos. You can choose between a bunch of delicious, high-quality meals, over 35 chef-crafted meals, in fact, every week that support a healthy lifestyle and meet your meal preferences, whether it's calorie smart, vegan, veggie, protein plus, and even more wholesome options. Uh, there's also uh, stuff for calorie conscious people. That, you know, if you're looking for calorie conscious options over the holidays, which can be quite difficult, um, you know, you can try delicious dietitian approved calorie smart meals with around or less than 550 calories per serving. If you need an extra boost to support your wellness goals and feel your best during the holidays. You can try the Protein Plus meals with 30 grams of protein or more per serving. So if any of that sounds like it should be a bit of you, head over to factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 and use code darkhistories50 to get 50% off. That's code darkhistories50, all one word, at factormeals.com slash darkhistories50 to get 50% off. Today's episode is also sponsored by BetterHelp. Since the end of the year, and, you know, we've got the depth of winter. It's a bit dark. out. Well, depending on where you are in the world, if you're in England, at least, it's dark outside. It gets dark far too early. Things start kind of like laying kind of heavy on your shoulders and you're just looking forward to the spring. It's completely understandable. And I think probably at least most people in England suffer from, you know, seasonal blues, um, at least just from the, the dark winters. But then, of course, you've got on top of that all the pressures that come with you know, seasonal holidays as well. And all of this can just be quite a lot. And it's natural to feel some sadness or even anxiety. Uh, but adding something new to your life uh, and positive 
can counteract some of these feelings. So how about therapy? It can be a bright spot amid all the stress and change. Something to look forward to, to make you feel grounded and to give you the tools to manage everything going on. I, I always vouch for therapy. Talking therapy is amazing. I, I suffered anxiety and I well, suffer from anxiety and I will always... I did, funnily enough, I'm the one that's always quite sceptical about it. I, you know, I'm always like, mm, what's more good therapy? And then I do it and I realise... I don't know how it works, but it just it's just great. And BetterHelp is is really accessible. So that's what I quite like about it. As someone who suffers anxiety, you know, accessibility is kind of key. And, and that is what I really like about BetterHelp. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, which is, like I say, the accessibility side of it. It's designed to be convenient. It's flexible and it's suited to your schedule. When I did it, I literally did it on a Monday morning in my pyjamas and it was super cool. Uh, you just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Uh, you can switch therapists at any time for no extra cost if you don't, for whatever reason, like the, the first therapist given to you. Um, but, you know, um, it's no big deal to switch if you if that is the case. Uh, I, I, I never found it to be the case when I did it, but if that's you, it's no big deal. So find your bright spots this season with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash darkhistories today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Dark Histories. Cheers. So this next story is from Marjorie Lawrence and was published in 1935. And Marjorie Lawrence is another really interesting uh, English writer. Uh, she was um, a poet, I think, first. And then she went on to write uh, sort of a lot of fiction uh, in in the sort of uh, detective and adventure sort of genre, which is which is fairly common, um, you know, magazine fodder, really. But she was a, a keen spiritualist and and a member of those circles uh, in London, like the, the the kind of it crowd of the uh, Psychical Research Society and the the Ghost Club, uh, which which was a, a group that got together and sort of in gentlemen's clubs and told ghost stories and that. And uh, they were all quite famous people. Um, but she was a, a kind of typical uh, between the wars, uh, middle class spiritualist, I guess. Um, but yeah, she she say she wrote a lot of ghost stories, and she wrote this one, which is called "The Man Who Came Back." It was a very merry house party. The givers of it, Colonel and Lady Garrison, were two pleasant, gregarious souls, not peculiarly interesting in themselves, but possessing that priceless gift that, in my opinion, should be subsidised when found by the government of the country to which the owner of it belongs, that gift that the Americans crisply describe as mixing. The garrisons, childless, well-to-do and middle-aged, gave, it was well known, by far the most amusing parties in their particular coterie, and fierce was the competition for invitations, especially to the annual Christmas house party held in their country house, a rambling, old-fashioned but supremely comfortable old manor in a well-known hunting county. The colonel was a keen man to hounds and, despite his increasing years and weight, still easily held his own with the younger men and several of his rivals in the hunting field were members of the present party who, sitting round a blazing fire in the drawing room after dinner, were eating chestnuts and cracking jokes, well pleased with themselves, their dinner and their hosts. Ted Balter, the MFH, and his pretty little wife, whose Dresden China beauty belied her pluck across country, the two Simons, brother and sister, Londoners, dark, given to odd clothes and odder bohemian jargon, altogether too arty and crafty in the colonel's private opinion, but indubitably young people to know, 
since they were rapidly becoming the only people who counted in the matter of smart house decoration. The Todd Hunters, travellers and explorers, Cecily Fleet, a county beauty just embarking on a film career, and her two admirers, Len Ponsonby and Terry Walters, a couple of young nephews, all bounce and brawn, and two new acquaintances that Lady Garrison had picked up at the bridge club that she frequented in town. Doctor and Mrs Playfair. Charming people, thought the Colonel, as with his glasses perched precariously on his forehead and his dinner jacket rumpled as usual between his shoulders, he twiddled with the knobs on his beloved radio in a vain endeavour to get Rome or Milan. Charming people. Playfair himself was a brilliant young fella, one of the coming men in Harley Street, everybody said, and his wife was a damn pretty woman, small and slim and exquisitely dressed, with the hair the colour of a new chestnut and golden hazel eyes. The two were complete lovebirds. At least, Playfair was obviously madly in love with his wife, never let her out of his sight unless he could help it, while she seemed sincerely fond of him, but between love and mere fondness lies a world of difference. Still, it seemed to be working all right, thought the colonel to himself, as he struggled with the wireless. But neither Rome nor Milan responded, and defeated, he turned to his guests. Something wrong with the blasted thing. Not that it matters. Anybody care for a game of billiards? he demanded. A chorus of assent came from the younger men, but Lady Garrison's motherly voice rose above them. Not a bit of it. I'm not going to let one of you out of here yet. I've got a surprise. I'm not another ghost, demanded Cecily Fleet, who had been at last year's gathering, and still retained vivid memories of the amazingly well-staged ghost scare that Lady Garrison had got up for the amusement of her Christmas guests. Lady Garrison, plump and matronly in plum-coloured satin, shook her well-marshalled grey head. Nothing so ordinary. She looked round the expectant circle with a smile of satisfaction. I've got another stunt, as you young people call it. I've got... What do you think? I've persuaded Madame Esperanza, a famous median, to come and give us a sitting. There was a general chorus of acclaim. How splendid, how perfectly marvellous. The bolters, who had a passion for bridge and considered any evening not spent at cards an evening wasted, smiled with tempered enthusiasm and said nothing. Cecily Fleet pressed her fingers long and slender and tipped with shining scarlet nails to her correspondingly scarlet lips and rolled scared blue eyes over them at the company in general. I shall be simply terrified, she proclaimed, but from his post at one side of the fire, Ned Playfair responded, smiling indulgently. No need to be in the least alarmed, Miss Fleet. His rich, pleasant voice was comfortingly reassuring. It's only an amusing game, of course. I assure you, there's nothing whatever in these so-called mediums. Nothing supernatural, that is. What do you mean by nothing whatever? Lady Garrison's tone was faintly nettled. With a bend of his handsome head in her direction, the young doctor deprecatingly replied, Oh, please forgive me, Lady Garrison, but really, you see, as a doctor... We know what this kind of thing is worth, and surely you, of all people, only regard a thing like this, this sitting, seance, whatever one likes to call it, as an amusing sort of game. You don't think there's really anything in it. There was a pause. Lady Garrison's plump face was faintly flushed, and her lips were pressed together. She was sharply irritated in truth. Not that she herself was an ardent believer in spiritualism, in which, to be honest, she was merely a dabbler, half believing and half sceptical but Playfair's undisguised contempt stung her at least momentary championship. I don't know, she spoke defiantly. I'm not clever enough to argue the point, Dr Playfair, 
and I freely admit that I, personally, haven't done enough of it to be able to speak with any authority. But if people like Marshall Hall and Oliver Lodge and uh, Conan Doyle and so on find something worth considering in it, it surely can't be dismissed so easily as that. There was an awkward pause. Cecily Fleet broke it with a little gush of girlish earnestness. I'm sure the doctor didn't mean uh, that, she said, skillfully skimming over what precisely she meant by that. But I'm sure the rest of us want to see Madame, what's her name, most frightfully. I do, for one. We do, chorused the Simons eagerly, and a general murmur of enthusiasm arose. It was obvious that the doctor's attitude of antagonism was not popular, and he was clever enough to see the wisdom of retreating at least a little way. He had no desire to quarrel with the garrisons and their very well-to-do circle. He smiled disarmingly. I'm sure I apologise, Lady Garrison, if inadvertently I said anything you might have construed into a sneer or a slight on your surprise. He smiled again at the old lady, where she sat stiffly braced, upright in her favourite red satin Victorian chair, and against her will she thawed, smiling reluctantly back. Certainly Playfair knew how to handle women, reflected the colonel, amused. Repute had it that he had had plenty of experience with them, even that his large practice was due to his extraordinary influence over and charm for women. But that was gossip in all probability, mere jealousy directed against a rising man, and the colonel, who was strictly fair-minded, scouted the idea almost as soon as it had raised its head. Yet it would not be entirely banished. Like a sardonic imp, it sat there, in the remotest corner of his mind, listening and watching as the young doctor smoothed down the ruffled feelings of his hostess and re-established himself in her good graces. You know, I didn't mean to be at all rude, Lady Garrison. Far from it. I spoke on impulse, that's all. And I had no idea you took the thing so seriously. But since you do, why then, I withdraw. Of course, I shall be only too pleased to join in anything you like to arrange. Lady Garrison arose, appeased. That's all right, she said. I'll go and fetch Madame Esperanza. She's here already, resting and preparing in my room. Mrs Bolter gave a little squeak of delighted fear. Oh, is she here? Have you kept her hidden until this moment? Oh, Ted, how thrilling. I only hope, said Lady Garrison, that the sitting will be thrilling. But mind, I don't promise anything. She said herself that, unless the conditions were favourable, she couldn't guarantee anything at all. The usual guff muttered Ned Playfair to his wife as the colonel, ever courteous, shuffled after his plump wife to open the door for her. Eda Playfair glanced up at him curiously, her hazel eyes starry under the shadow of her fringe of chestnut hair. Don't you like it, Ned? If you'd rather not sit, I'm sure we can get out of it. I'm a little bit scared, to be honest. He shook his head and glanced round the rest of the group, their eyes fixed expectantly on the door. I'm afraid not... I've rather foolishly put the old girls back up by joking about it, and since I want to get them as patients, or at least some of their friends, they've a hell of a lot of influence. I suppose we shall have to sit through it. But you've no reason to feel scared, Ida. It's all rot. Clever posing with a spot of telepathy or hypnotism or guesswork thrown in as make-weight. He smiled down at her reassuringly, but her eyes were on the fire. Her expression was faintly dissatisfied. I don't know, she began... If, as Lady Garrison says, all these brilliant men have come to the conclusion that there is something in it, surely it can't all be rubbish? Until Van Hayden told me. Impatiently, he interrupted, his black brows drawn together in a dangerous-looking scowl. I don't care what Tilly Van Hayden said. She's a silly, twittering fool. Anyway, just the type that likes to mess about with what it describes as the occult. 
I tell you it's fraud. And when it's not a deliberate fraud, it's a mixture of hysteria and self-delusion and hypnotism. And I don't know what all. If it didn't mean that I can't afford to offend the old folks, we've only just got to know them. I'd go upstairs to bed right away and not waste time on their damn silly seance. But, however... He paused, for the door opened, and Lady Garrison entered, followed by a strange woman, an insignificant little woman wearing a shabby black velvet dress ornamented with a conglomeration of cheap beads about the neck. She had greying hair, untidily bundled into a bun at the back of her head, pince-nez, and a small, faded, indefinite face behind large horn-rimmed glasses. An almost audible hush of disappointment ran around the room, for nobody, less like a professional sibyl, could possibly be imagined. But Lady Garrison, experienced hostess, instantly filled in the awkward moment with a flood of introductions. Madame Esperanza, Miss Bolter, Miss Fleet, Mr and Mrs Todhunter. The little woman, warming her meagre hands at the fire, nodded and smiled vaguely at each fresh name until Lady Garrison ended her litany with Doctor and Mrs Playfair, and that's the lot. The medium, raising her eyes from the fire, surveyed the owners of the last two names. He's still standing with one arm on the mantelpiece, watching the proceedings with a quizzical eye. She crouched on a black velvet poof at his feet, her white, tall frock billowing about her like a summer cloud. For a moment, Madame Esperanza eyed the pretty woman at her feet, then spoke suddenly. "'Are you going to be at the sitting?' she asked. Her voice was reedy, and she spoke with a faintly uneducated twang. Ida Playfair regarded her with a slight sense of distaste, mingled with wonder and a rising sense of incredulity. Surely nothing that this common, shabby little woman could say could really be worthwhile. Probably, as Ned declared, she was just a clever poseuse, some backstreet pythoness who had somehow managed to impress dear old Theodosia Garrison, but quite obviously nobody to feel afraid of. She laughed breezily. Certainly I am. I'm not going to miss shaking hands with a spook. The medium looked down at her in silence. Behind, the room was in a cheerful uproar as chairs were hastily arranged in a circle. Tables, cushions and whatnots pushed into corners, the doors locked and a length of scarlet silk draped over the chandelier to dim its brightness to the requisite subdued glow. Lady Garrison, in her element, was bustling about directing operations and for the moment the three beside the fire were alone. Unnoticed, the shabby little woman with the intent eyes and the handsome young doctor and his wife. As if hypnotised by that strange, steady stare for a moment, Ida stared back without speaking. Then, Madame Esperanza spoke, suddenly and decidedly. I wouldn't, if I were you, she said. Ida's eyes flew wide with amazement, and her husband laughed dryly. Why not, he said curtly. The medium looked at him, opened her mouth to speak and changing her mind, looked back at the fire and went on warming her hands in silence. But Edith Playfair's curiosity was aroused. Moreover, she felt faintly irritated that the woman's warning should coincide with a deep-seated sense of reluctance in her own heart. She did not want to take part in the sitting in truth, but it was odd that Madame What's-Her-Name should have voiced, echoed that feeling. Why don't you think I should go to the sitting? she persisted. The medium lifted her thin shoulders in an oddly foreign shrug. Perhaps, reflected the doctor sardonically, she actually deserved the name under which she worked. Esperanza. It was a convincing name with which to tickle the groundlings, and she was quite a good actress anyway. All this, of course, was according to type. 
She wouldn't be able to say why she had said what she had to Ada. Would only hedge and hint. Yet, I can't tell you why I said that, the medium said, almost brusquely. But sometimes, before a sitting, I get the feeling that for a certain person, it would be better if they didn't join in. I don't know why, but it's always right. She raised eyes, suddenly piercing behind their horn room glasses, to Playfair, standing leaning against the mantelpiece with his hands in his pockets, a barely concealed smile of derision on his dark face. It applies to you too, you know, she said bluntly. I'd keep away from this seeing if I were you. Playfair's mouth fell open, then he laughed aloud and scornfully. My dear lady, what on earth have I to fear? Again that dark glance, and again the shrug. You know best. I don't know a thing about your life, of course. But if you've a secret in your life, if you've something to hide, or if you've done something, well, that you don't like to look back on, then if so, I find some excuse not to join in this circle. Edith Playfair's hand flew to clasp her husband's. Something to hide? Her voice was sharp with affectionate resentment. What a perfectly idiotic idea, darling. But for once, an appeal by his adorned wife passed Ned Playfair by. He did not hear, for he was staring at the woman with sudden attention, staring fixedly, and for a moment it seemed as though his handsome brown face was a trifle white and strained. Then, with a brusque laugh, he seemed to dismiss the whole thing and turned away. Absurd. But I congratulate you, he spoke coldly over his shoulder. I congratulate you on playing the part excellently. From the very first minute you came on that stage. Brilliant, really. You ought to go on the stage proper. De Taunt was blatantly rude, but the medium did not seem to hear. She was staring down into the fire, apparently lost in thought. Flushed with excitement, Lady Garrison bustled up, talking as usual at the top of her voice. Come on now, come along, it's all ready. That's right, isn't it, madam? The medium turned and, surveying the room, nodded briefly. That's right. You have the door locked so that servants can't come in and interrupt. Good, then we'll start. Entering the circle, she seated herself in the central chair, the hug-leather grandfather, generally sacred to the colonel, and glanced around to the ring of eager faces that surrounded her. Taking off her glasses, she put them neatly away, like any maiden aunt, in a leather spectacle case, and tucked them into the beaded bag that swung from her waist. And for a moment, Ida Playfair blinked, surprised. For the eyes that the horn-rimmed glasses had hidden were dark and amazing, set in deep hollows that emphasised their darkness, piercing, oddly dominant eyes, eyes that suddenly seemed to promise all sorts of possibilities. A faint sense of fear touched her once more like a passing wing, and she reached for her husband's hand and gave it a quick squeeze to give herself courage as she settled into her place. He glanced at her, surprised and touched, for as the colonel had shrewdly surmised, their relations were definitely, as the old French song says, l'une qui bay et l'autre qui tend le jus. Despite his desperate love of her, it was still, with her, only a gentle turning of the cheek. There is one thing that I must ask all of you, please. It was the medium speaking. Her voice already sounded oddly drowsy and slow. That is, that when I am once in trance, you keep your places until I come out of trance. She blinked and paused, as though collecting thoughts already growing hazy. It may be very dangerous to me for anyone to leave their seat without permission from my control. If he gives it, all right, but not otherwise. I can't explain the conditions, 
but I am sure you will accept my assurance that this rule is necessary. A subdued murmur of assent rose from the circle, and settling back into the chair with her head against the padded back, Madame Esperanza closed her eyes, and drawing a long breath, appeared to go to sleep. Playfair smiled faintly to himself as he watched her. Of course, the usual thing, talk a lot of vague stuff about conditions in order to impose conditions that made it utterly impossible for anybody to investigate the thing. The usual thing, except that it was odd at what she had said. But here Dr Playfair, like the Colonel, hustled a certain thought deliberately and firmly into the background and settled down to watch events. Everything was quiet. At first, an excited giggle or two from one of the women broke out, a rustle of movement as somebody changed their position, a subdued whisper. But now, as though hypnotised, everyone sat very still, and dead silence lay like a deep, unfathomable pool over the dimly lit room. In the great chair, the medium lay sunk in sleep, and the red light, falling almost directly upon her, etched curious lights and shadows on her shrunken little face. Watching, Ida Playfair shivered suddenly, thinking the face had changed, gained a curious dignity and power. The lines down each side of the mouth, the deep hollows about the eyes, looked as though carved in stone. The whole face looked, indeed, like the face of some old crusader reclining man-size in marble upon his tomb. Or the death mask, stern, immovable, of some ancient king, long forgotten of mankind. Even as Ida Playfair stared and shivered, clutching her husband's hand, the medium shuddered violently, gave a smothered ejaculation in some unknown tongue, and then, with an indescribable majesty, sat upright in her chair. With eyes still shut, she turned her head slowly from side to side, following the ring of faces as though she saw, indeed, through those fast-closed lids, and her face was sternly unfamiliar. Mrs Bolter clutched her husband's arm, "'It's not the same woman,' she whispered agitatedly. "'It's a man's face. "'Oh, Tony, I wish we hadn't started. I'm frightened.' "'A deep voice broke the silence, uttering a few unintelligible words. "'The usual bastard Hebrew or Egyptian,' muttered the doctor under his breath, "'but he dared not speak aloud. "'Although he was still utterly convinced that the whole thing was nothing but a clever fraud, "'against his will he was impressed, impressed at least into silence. "'And that change in the face, that voice,' heavy, masculine, rich, was certainly amazingly well done. Who'd have thought that shabby little Aunt Jane had it in her? The voice was speaking again, but now in English. Peace be to this house. The head bowed gravely in the direction of Lady Garrison, sitting upright, clutching the hands of her neighbours, her wholesome pink face flushed with excitement and nervousness. Peace. The blind eyes went round the circle again as though seeking something, then paused. Peace and greetings to all, from the world of spirit. I know what you would have. You would hold talk with those whom you call dead, with those who are on this side. And that is well, when you take care to whom you talk. There was a pause while the sitters, bewildered, looked at each other. Lady Garrison broke it at last. Uh, how do you do? The lame modern phrase sounded incredibly foolish. I, we are very glad to see you. And of course, you are quite right about what we want to do, but we don't quite understand. I will explain. The deep voice paused, then continued. I am what you call the control of this instrument here on earth, and the name I use is Sekhet, 
On this side, we do not like to allow these instruments, what you call mediums, to be used by anyone who chooses. We try to keep back those whom we do not think should speak to you, yet our powers are limited, and if the force is very strong, we must stand aside and permit it to speak. But in this case, I do not think it would be wise. What do you mean? It was Ned Playfair's voice, brusque, unbelieving, that broke the puzzled silence that had followed on the control's speech. The figure bowed its head. I mean that there is here, amongst other souls who wish to speak, one soul that I would try to keep from speaking, and for that reason I think it would be wise. He bowed once more with ineffable grace and courtesy towards Lady Garrison, to what you call break up the meeting. Release your hands, thus shutting the current off, and I will bring the medium out of trance at once. A chorus of astonished and indignant voices answered him. Give it up, just when it's getting interesting. What an idea, but why? The chorus rolled round the circle while Ned Playfair sat back and smiled, just as he had expected. The woman, seeing from the outset that she was not to be fooled like the others, had tried to frighten him, first through Eda, then directly away from the sitting. And now, finding that he was not to be so frightened, she had recourse to this childish expedient. She was prepared to break up the circle to lose her fee and disappoint a group of eminently worthwhile people sooner than risk discovery. Now nothing in the world would persuade him to allow the circle to be broken, and he added his sharply cut drawl to the chorus. Surely, Mr. Uh, Secker, you don't think you can frighten us in that way. I can assure you that we are prepared for any and everything that may happen, but we are not prepared to abandon the sitting. There was a momentary pause. The others looked gratefully at their champion, but Ida Playfair, suddenly white, half rose from her seat. I want to go, she whispered. Her face was curiously strained. Her great eyes ringed like a doze. I don't know why, but I want to go. The deep voice answered from the centre of the circle. That is wise, little lady. You may go, but for you others, close the circle in as she leaves, friends, so that the current is broken as little as possible. Without a word, the white-clad figure rose and fled, and as the door closed behind her, the voice resumed. With regard to what you say, my son, the blind eyes seemed to pierce right through the dark young doctor where he sat. If you insist, all have free will, and if it is the will of all to go on with the sitting, so be it. But I still advise you against it. There was a faint pause. Lady Garrison, more impressed than she cared to admit, glanced uncertainly around the circle. The Bolters looked doubtful, the Todd Hunters puzzled, the Simons cynically amused, Cecily Fleet and her attendant Swains definitely disappointed. A very little would have persuaded the good lady to take the mysterious Seckert's foot advice and dissolve the circle together, but Ned Playfair's voice rose again, brusque, antagonistic. I suggest that we are rather wasting time, Lady Garrison. I, for one, refuse to be alarmed by vague hints and warnings. We form this circle for the definite purpose of seeing signs and wonders, and if Madame Esperanza feels that for some reasons, the sneer was patent, she cannot tonight produce these signs and wonders, then let her say so plainly and candidly. But if she is not prepared to say so, why then let her carry on. And we'll take the consequences, suggests Cecily Fleet with a giggle, if there are any. And, agreed Playfair, suavely, we'll take the consequences. At least, if there are any consequences, we shall all agree not to blame you, Mr. Seckett. The sternly upright figure in the centre of the circle bowed its head resignedly. So be it. 
You have, as I said, free will. And if you will insist against my advice upon opening this door tonight, then I will do my best to control the soul that already beats upon it, desiring to re-establish contact with the earth that he has left. But still, all, I go to prepare the way. There was a slight convulsion of the body, and the medium drooped together, fell back into the chair. In the red light, her face was again the face of a weary little middle-aged woman, lined and tired. Cecily Fleet, who was sitting on the other side of Ned Playfair, nudged him eagerly as she whispered, Look, isn't that odd? Her face looked just like a man when that was talking, and now it's herself again, isn't that queer? But there was no time to answer, for the medium, muttering rapidly and unintelligibly to herself, was rising upright in her chair. Her face was twisted and distressed, and the voice that came through her lips was hoarse with a rattle now and then, like the voice of somebody striving through the stress of furious excitement to speak clearly and connectedly, a voice entirely and utterly different from the measured level tones of Seca. Suddenly the hoarseness left it, and it came clear, ringing a strong masculine voice, and at the sound of it, Ned Playfair bounded in his chair, his face suddenly chalk white, his eyes blazing. Yet the voice was not addressing him. It seemed to be arguing with someone unseen, so that it sounded for all the world like a human voice arguing with a telephone operator. Let me get through, will you? Oh yes, I'll remember. I'll keep steady. At least I'll do my best. But don't lecture me now, do you hear? I've got to get through. I tell you I must. I must know she's there. I know she's there. Then, in a ringing shout that rang through the room like a clarion call, I want my wife, I say, I want my wife. The call was so electric, so painful in its intensity, that a loud and startled gasp ran around the circle. Cecily Fleet, her flippancy vanished, gave a pitiful little cry that echoed Mrs Bolter's, and the hot tears pricked behind Lady Garrison's eyes as, as in a strangled voice she stammered. Your wife, I, I, I'm afraid. Who is it speaking? Neil Ramsey, came the answer instantly, sharp and clear. And Cecily Fleet, hearing a quick-drawn breath at her shoulder, turned and peered at the man beside her. Odd that Ned Playfair, who, of all people, had been at the start the hardest, the most defiantly sceptical, should be so shaken now. Even in the dusky red glow from the scarlet-draped lamp, one could see how white he was. Did you know Neil Ramsey? she whispered but Playfair shook his head. No, no, he muttered feverishly, and the entire circle started with amazement and alarm as the voice came again, this time in a furious shout. Liar! You to say you don't know me, Ned Playfair! With a huge effort, the medium staggered from the chair and, standing planted firmly on her feet, faced the white doctor. Half risen from his chair, Playfair stood shaking, endeavouring to steady himself with one hand upon his chair back, but with the sweat of sheer terror running down his face, while within him two things fought fiercely for mastery. Cynicism, the bitter atheism that refused, even at this moment, to believe that he beheld anything other than the horribly brilliant tour de force of acting, and fear, that dreadful aching fear that turns a man's bones to water and his soul to a stone that sinks therein. Madly he snatched at his vanishing self-control and tried to laugh, but all that came was a cracked whisper, a ghastly echo of a laugh. Ha ha! Of course I remember you now, old fellow. Neil Ramsey. But, but why? You know why I come. You don't need to ask. The little figure in black was menacing now, frail as a shadow, yet charged with a dreadful shattering power. 
You know why I come, Playfair, to find my wife, my wife of whom you robbed me. A terrified shuddering ran around the circle, and Mrs. Bolter slipped quietly to the ground in a faint, but held in the steel grip of sheer fascinated horror, nobody could either move or speak. Playfair stood as though turned to stone, his eyes fixed on the grim little figure before him as the voice thundered on. Of whom you robbed me, Ned Playfair, the wife for whom you murdered me. With a spring like that of a coiled snake, on the last word she was on him, her lean fingers knotted in his throat, shrieking hysterical with fear. The woman sprang up and scattered as the two fought, swaying and staggering wildly about in the centre of the circle, while the men, flinging chairs aside, seized the combatants and tried to force them apart. Then, suddenly in their arms, the woman went limp and a great voice spoke. It seemed from over their heads. Put her down, there, in the chair, and leave her to come round. I have removed the poor love-craved soul who just possessed her. I warned you, I, Secret, but you would not be warned. Yet retribution is just. See to him now. Farewell. It ceased, and in silence the shaken group gathered around the prone form of the young doctor, lying just where he had fallen, among a welter of fallen chairs, scattered bags and scarves and fans, stark in the brilliance of the white light from which the shrouding red drapery had been removed. His face was set in a terrible expression of fear and rage, and there were red marks round his throat where the thin, vicious fingers had clutched. He lay deadly still, and with a sudden fear catching at his heart, Colonel Garrison beckoned Todd Hunter over to his side. As becomes an explorer, the brown-faced man had a good working knowledge of medicine. Kneeling in a dead and awful silence, he opened the prostate man's shirt, tested his heart and held a mirror to his lips, then looked up with a grave face. Cecily Fleet, reading the news in his eyes, burst into tears and a general murmur of horror ran around the room as soberly Todd Hunter rose to his feet. Dead, of heart failure as far as I can judge, he said gravely. Those marks on the throat are nothing, only superficial, although the spirit that moved her to attack him was a man, or so it seems. She was only a frail little woman, and it wasn't her attack that killed or even injured him. He died of shock, and if tonight's experience is as genuine as I believe it to be, no wonder. But what is all this about, and who was Ramsay? breathed the colonel, his healthy red face palpably pale with horror. Todd Hunter hesitated for a moment. I don't like to say much, he said, especially as the man's dead now and has paid for his sins, but whoever spoke through the woman's mouth was, it thought, by many people to be the sober truth. Eda Playfair was Eda Ramsay, the wife of Neil Ramsay, until a year or two ago, and they adored each other. Playfair met them and fell desperately in love with her but she wouldn't look at him, so Playfair played a waiting game. He cultivated Ramsay, who was rather a simple soul, became his doctor as well as his bosom friend, and one summer about two years ago, they went on a fishing expedition together, and upon that expedition, Ramsay was taken ill and died. Through, so Playfair said, eating tinned food that wasn't quite good. Playfair gave the certificate of death, natural causes, so that was okay for Playfair, and when he came back to London, he made himself so indispensable to poor little Eda, who was completely lost and bewildered without Ramsay, that at last she married him. 
though they were not lacking folks who said that Ramsay's convenient death, that left a charming and wealthy wife ready, as it were, to Playfair's hand, was rather too convenient to be convincing. That's the story, and in view of what has happened tonight, it looks very much as though it were true. So that was The Man Who Came Back, which is a curious story, and I think it's it's kind of... Uh, it's, it's definitely of its time. Um, you can see the the the, the spiritualism uh, in, in influences and how how the writer was clearly a spiritualist, and and you know the characters represent the the time really well. I think um, I think it, it's it, it's not so scary today, but it's still a fascinating story. And it's oh, yeah, so I think it's interesting when you view it from that perspective. Anyway, that's. Uh, a couple of ghost stories for Halloween. And from going forward, I say I'm going to start reading uh, these stories every other week, I think, in between Dark Histories episodes um, and upload them as bonus episodes, just sort of short little bonuses as little ghost stories. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, happy Halloween. Sleep tight. So thank you very much for listening to this season. Say in the introduction, I kind of went on, so I won't go on again. I will just say thank you very much uh, once more for for listening all year and sticking with me and you know um, just 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 you know everything. Just just thank you for everything. It's been an absolute privilege as it always is um, to to do another season and and be looking already ahead to next season. So yeah. Thank you very much. I'll see you shortly for the Christmas campfire episode. Until then, take care. Sleep tight.